Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. This February in Washington, D.C., Weedy, in partnership with HL7, is holding its fourth annual health equity event. That's a forum and workshop taking place February 12th to 13th at the American University and on Zoom. This two-day event will feature healthcare and community stakeholder panels presenting on how they are leveraging data and technology to address health disparities in underserved populations. The event concludes with open small group discussions focusing on key health equity topics, including maternal health, policy, standards, care transition, and more. You can learn more about that conference at wediweedy.org. So, an exciting event planned, and that is why I'm excited to talk to my panel of guests today. These are individuals and organizations uh, that are working to revolutionize healthcare data and analytics. One place where they are laser-focused is improving outcomes through the collection and examination of social determinants of health data. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT a Weedy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. I'm Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience for all. I also serve as the Policy Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And this, of course, is the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. And as I said today, very excited uh, to welcome a number of individuals. Um, Weedy member SSC is among them to the podcast to talk about social determinants of health. With us today is Brian Weichel, Principal Sales Executive at SSNC Health, Amy Saul, Senior Director, Strategic Business Consulting Executive Advisory, or just plainly the Data Goddess for short, SSNC. <laughs> And then John Novak, CIO and VP of Information Services at the Bergen New Bridge Medical Center. So looking forward to discussing the value of social determinants of health data, how you all have leveraged it, and what gaps and challenges exist, and and how we plan to address them. Brian, Amy, John, good to have you on our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Very good. So, John, uh, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, can you just give us a, maybe a 10,000-foot uh, introduction to what we mean by social determinants of health, uh, what we mean by social determinants of health data, uh, and uh, why that's important both from a clinical side and, and, and the related uh, data side? In a nutshell, social determinants of health are conditions and environment that the people come from. So it's where they live, where they play, where they worship, and those pieces. If you have a patient that's in your hospital but is homeless, doesn't have a home or has um, food insecurity where they don't have enough food to eat, you don't want to be discharging a patient back into an unsafe environment. That in a super high level is what it is. Good. Excellent. John, I appreciate that so much. That's a great introduction to our show today. Now I'm going to back up uh, and I'm going to ask um, uh, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce um, their positions, what they do, and what their uh, what their uh, their various organizations do. Uh, Brian, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about SSNC, and then John will switch to you, and and you can tell us about the the Bergen New Bridge Medical Center. So go ahead, Brian. Uh, thank you, Matthew. Yeah, SSNC has uh, has been around really for 38 years, actually, and, and uh, Bill Stone, our CEO and founder, uh, really has his heart in the healthcare field. In fact, 
you know, what, what I've found, uh, you know, working for SSMC is that uh, really Bill puts his money where his mouth is, I think, because, you know, just uh, over the years, he's, he's really developed 30 plus million dollars in, in uh, his own hometown in the health arena with a foundation set it up in Evansville, Indiana, uh, with a, a collaboration with Indiana University uh, Health setting up a um, uh, child adolescence and psychiatric center uh, there in town. So um, a founder that believes in health, that wants to uh, grow the spectrum of health and better outcomes. Um, and with that, you know, 27,000 employees strong across uh, all countries, uh, except Iceland, uh, in, in, the, in the world today. And um, one thing that, uh, that I'm... Uh, you know, really involved in from a from a data analytics side, because that's really where my focus is, is working with the payers and providers across the country is our collaboration with Johns Hopkins um, School of Public Health and the ACG. And I think that's that's where the benefit of the of SSNC's foundation and the collaboration of a really a 30 year plus collaboration with Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, I think. Uh, driving better outcomes comes from all of those good synergies together. Very good. Uh, thank you, Brian. John, why don't you tell us a little bit about your hospital? Uh, Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest um, hospital in the state of New Jersey with over a thousand beds. It's also the fourth largest public hospital in the nation. Um, but our mission, we are a safety net hospital, so our mission is to serve those underserved populations, which is why social determinants of health are such critical to how we run our day-to-day -day operations. Very good, very good. Amy, I don't wanna leave you out of this conversation um, <laughs> and you are the data queen. Uh, tell us a little bit uh, maybe about your title and then uh, tie for us together what SSNC is doing specifically in this social determinants of health area. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I am an analyst at heart, right? So everything data is in my world. Um, and in this particular instance, you know, you can't, you can't improve what you can't measure. So we spend a lot of time helping organizations really understand what exists within their population in terms of social needs, um, identifying those disparities in care, being able to quantify them, and allowing them to use that both at the strategy level as to where they're going to invest and at the person level to say, how literally will I help this person um, you know, with the resources that are available to them. Excellent. Excellent. Amy. Um, and uh, maybe we'll switch back to you, John. Um, Amy touched on, you know, we've defined cells for determinants of health, but there's this, this set of data that, that can indicate social determinants of health. Um, how does that play into your organization? And, and, and what are your thoughts on that data particularly? Well, you have to ask and collect it. Otherwise, there is no data. So that's one of the first pieces is getting the tools out there to collect that data. Um, and internally, we do do a, a social terms of health screening when we have a new patient intake. So we can look at all those and get, get in front of it. So if you have someone that you know is homeless that's coming into your hospital, you want to start to work with, with them to get into a program so that when they already leave, they have a place to go. Or if you have someone that comes in and there's a food insecurity in their house and they're in for a diabetic piece, um, you don't want to send them to a place where they're not going to have that food sustainability that they need. So by collecting some of those basic economic and health-related information, you're allowed to help treat the whole patient, just not what they first present for. 
And that gotcha. can lead you, as opposed to just treating the mental behavior, mental illness, you're treating the entire person as a whole. And, and, and how do uh, community-based organizations, and, and if you will, maybe kind of identify some of those, uh, what those community-based organizations might be, how do they help you with that retrieval of that data, or how do they help you with the data more broadly? You know, the, probably the biggest way is they include us. We do work with a lot of faith-based organizations, um, local community organizations, um, home, you know, local homeless shelters. And when they're doing an event, they always bring us into the fold. There's no formal sharing of data, but at least getting us engaged with boots on the ground allows us to collect that data and also help people navigate healthcare, which is a challenge in itself. And, and I imagine one, one, one issue that comes up, I would imagine, in these populations is trust. Right. And so uh, perhaps the community based organization give you a, a little imprimatur of trust or do you find that that trust comes more easily as a, as a medical provider? No, no, I think you hit it right on the head. It's when you're going into a faith based or community organization, that's the community. So they feel they're bringing this organization in. There's got to be a reason they're bringing them in. They're not just, some, you know, pop up at the corner. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and Brian, uh, maybe you want to touch on that as well, the community, the coordinating with community-based organizations? Yeah, so some of the work that we do and, and the outreach through other organizations are like the two-on-ones of, uh, of the various cities. And again, those are those are ones that are really driving community health. And and I've had some some uh, work with uh, San Diego 211, for example. And so working with them and their local HIE, uh, which is, you know, obviously driving all the data points from all the payers and providers into their uh, system and then uh, bidirectionally sending that data out uh, throughout the community as well as other states, picking up that extra uh, community top health um, organization like the two one ones in the various cities, I think is extremely key to find that missing data that potentially may not be captured in other areas, because obviously we know that, you know, there's a lot of silos in data. And so how do we extrapolate that data and bring it in to a to one central view or be able to expand on what we have at our fingertips? Good, good. And you'll have to back up for me a bit, Brian. 211, can you define that, a 211? That's just what they call it. Uh, you know, uh, 211, uh, essentially, they're um, the necessary need to um, to get the information out and get the information quick uh, within that community. So uh, they went with the moniker of, uh, of 211. So again, Obviously, I work with San Diego, so I say San Diego two on one. But you know, there's other two on ones in various other cities. Very good, very good. Um, and and Amy, I don't know if you want to touch on the community based organizations and from your perspective uh, and crunching the numbers, uh, how that plays into it. Yeah, well, so you know, some of the things that we do is we help fill the gaps while that data is still evolving. Right? Um, in terms of the making those assessments available using Interop to exchange that data in the interim, we can gain a lot of knowledge based on the actual geography that people live in and do small area analysis so that you can identify, you know, pockets of very specific needs. Um, where is food insecurity highest? That's where you would, you know, work with uh, specifically community organizations to fill those specific needs. Um, and, and identifying, um, you know, a lot of times in healthcare, we try to direct patients to do certain things that are in their best interest. 
But we often don't acknowledge that there may be access challenges. And so identifying where the access is the problem, you need to meet them where they are, not ask them to come to you. Um, so a lot of the analysis we focus on is making sure that um, the resources are available to people where they where they need them. Very good. And you actually touched on two um, themes that come up often in this show with our various guests in terms of the, the direction of, of medicine and data. Um, the one is the idea of access, right? And I think we all experienced that through the pandemic that they're, in a sense, not just for, for marginalized uh, populations or communities, but also for everybody. There's, the, there's a way that you have to bring healthcare to them uh, mm-hmm. instead of using the bricks and mortar as a way to always deliver healthcare. And I think the second part, and, and John, I'm interested in your thoughts on these two themes. The second part is um, the, all the considerable amount of data with the with the um, the advent of smart AI, but also just the use of regular AI that we've had for years, suddenly we're at a place where medicine can become very localized and very very personal. Right? That if there's one thing that all this data will show that not all patients are treated differently, and as you pointed out, not all areas should be treated just like the area that might look like it next door. Um, so, John, I don't know if you want to touch on those two themes uh, in terms of, of where medicine is headed with that kind of that kind of data. Yeah, um, absolutely. Here in Bergen County, New Jersey, one of the things they do every couple of years, they actually do a community health needs assessment where it takes demographics from the county itself. Um, all the hospitals um, contribute data and information, and it does a lot of that. It shows you where there is need. Um, most people think of Bergen County as an affluent um, community, but there are pockets of, of people uh, of both ends of the spectrum. So it's in the community need assessment that we're really able to use that to help us focus the areas, and that's many data sets being brought together. Um, and I do think that you know AI, machine learning, is all going to allow us just to expand using those data sets, and hopefully over the next couple of years, sharing them more readily across organizations and maybe even a lot of standardization. Because if you go look for a, a screening tool for social determinants of health, there is no shortage of them. Um, and they collect a little bit of different things. So I think normalizing the data is definitely needed. And that's part of the interoperability. And I think that's where some of the value um, that HL7 can help bring into this, since we've been doing it in the healthcare space for so long, um, and taking lessons from other industries that share much more uh, frequently and more in depth than healthcare has ever done. Thank you, John. And and you touched on two things. Uh, one is the idea of sharing data, and the other idea of standardizing that data. Uh, which turns me to you, Brian. Uh, maybe you want to talk a little bit about some of the obstacles uh, to um, what we're talking about here, right? I, I assume the the goal here is to get the right data in the right hands for the right reason, for the right person, for the right at the right time, right? Um, and certainly social determinants of health is part of what a doctor wants to have in their hands when they're when they're uh, uh, providing care. What's some of the obstacles to that 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 ideal state? You know, absolutely. And, and, and I tell you what, what I've seen over the years is, is really it gets down to almost a, the simplest denominator, right? And that's at the time of registration, how that data is captured really at the time of registration. And, and what data is not captured, because, again, rules and regulations of what you can what you can you know ask for, what you have, what you can verify at the registration counter. And then what I've seen over the years is that whatever that missing component is, 
uh, to really create a full picture of that individual, you know, again, that we can use in other, you know, data analysis is it gets kind of thrown over the fence to the uh, HIM department. And, and, and so they're tasked with trying to uh, find any additional data attributes that, that potentially are missing. So now you're forced to go out and, and go to a potentially referen- referential database that you're trying to bring that data in. And then you have to re- you know, determine, okay, if I'm bringing that in, is, it, is patient A the same as patient B? And, and, and some of that information looks the same, but would I combine that information? Do I have enough information to make that a single golden record per se? And, and I think that's the challenges that I see on a daily basis is because again, going back to my thought about data being siloed, is you're pulling all this information, but is it is it pulling all the right information and do you have the tools in place to help uh, with the manual process? Because it's a very still a very heavy manual process uh, driven industry. And I think you know what what you know Amy and I are, are, are tasked to do as well and, and John looks for is is ways to mitigate a lot of the human element, try to simplify it. Uh, you know, reduce the the need of resources, but get it accurate. How do we get it get better at doing that? Good, thank you, Amy. Do you want to touch on that at all? Some of the obstacles, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think the other part of this is that these assessments are dynamic, right? You might have someone if you ask them today, "Are you food insecure?" They're like, "Nope, I'm good." And then tomorrow, they find out they are on a list to lose their job, and all of a sudden, they're not only food insecure, but also, you know, housing insecure and under a significant amount of stress. So it's hard to, I think, um, keep that data contemporary as well. Right, right. John, do you want to touch on that, on some of the obstacles? I think Amy just hit one of the best ones is it's timeliness of the data. If you're looking at something that's a couple of weeks old, it's not useless in the overall picture, you can still use it for data, but in the treatment and the care of the individual, um, it could send you in a completely different direction. And there are things like if we have, if you have someone who needs to come into the hospital for addiction counseling or um, medical withdrawal, and they're on the phone, but they can't get there till tomorrow when their sister's free, you want to send a ride chair to go get them right? They can't get there. You want to enable that. So it's being able to get the data and be able to use it at a timely fashion at the point of care. Right. Um, And so how about ideas for solutions uh, to some of these issues? For for instance, timeliness. Um, I imagine, right, it's some some of the, this population might be hard to track and certainly on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Do we have ideas for solutions? There's always ideas. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) Never a lack of ideas. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the ch- yeah, the challenge is just that. One of the things that we've done is we do, every time we have an encounter, we do do the social determinants of health um, collection. So for that piece, it's, it's okay, but you don't know if it changes from that point. So some of this is maybe with the follow-up that you're doing after discharge uh, planning or transitions of care, they need to follow up on some of these things, especially someone they know based on the the bigger piece of data that that person is in maybe an underserved community or in a known community that doesn't have a supermarket in the area that you can maybe do some more follow-up, but we would need the data and the analytics. And that's where I could also probably help overlay that and give us 
point uh, places to point and patients to target. Right. Right. And do you think um, um, technology has helped? And I'm thinking again of the pandemic where telehealth certainly and remote health access was kind of accelerated on many different fronts, uh, right? Um, does the technology help in terms of keeping that data up to date? Is there is there thoughts afoot to um, have that kind of day-to-day check-in with, with some of the individual patients? From my point of well, view, we're moving there. I'm sorry, go ahead, Brian. Okay. Well, uh, no, I was going to say, John, I, I think it I think it does, but I think it gets back, and, and maybe this is what you were going to touch upon, John, is, is really the, you know, who are you talking to? You know, what's the technology of the individual, the patient side? And um, what level are they um, from a skill set uh, access uh, to uh, to be able to communicate in various different ways, but also the age. I know, uh, you know, my 85 year old, you know, you know, uh, father would act differently to a telehealth <laughs> discussion than, you know, a 25 year old. And, and so that it, it, it becomes more of a those you need to touch with a, with a uh, from a from a personal perspective and those that you can follow up from a technology perspective. And, and so I think that's where you really have to understand the community. So I'm sure that's what you're going to delve on to as well, John, but I'll let you finish. <laughs> yeah, no, you hit it right right where I was going to go is it's, it's really it's not a single solution. It's got to be like omni channel. So it's different ways for the different populations. Um Someone who is in the affluent communities may have the latest smartphone and computers and may want to interact with that. And maybe they want to share their their data through their Fitbit. But someone who doesn't have a Fitbit isn't going to be sharing their data. Or there's going to be other applications that will be created and that could be targeting some of the social determinants of health that could be published. And maybe we're linking those in with ways to get them connected to some of those uh, community-based organizations or if we identify that it's possibly they have a food insecurity, hook them up with Meals on Wheels. You know, use the technology to help align some of those pieces. Great, great. Um, So um, it feels as though philosophically this country, uh, on the local level, state level, federal level, uh, in terms of lawmakers, policymakers, philosophically it sounds like social determinants of health uh, social determinants of health data that needs to be folded into to um, uh, to considerations of health access and healthcare delivery. Um, first, I'd like to maybe ask you if you if you agree with that statement that philosophically there seems to be an understanding that there are social determinants of health in the first place and they are important to both access and delivery. But secondly, what tactically maybe needs to happen? Again, at the HL seven level, at the local level, at the federal level, or what would be what would be uh, advantageous to you all to to facilitate some of this um, from a from a governmental level, from a uh, I want to say political level in the terms of what lawmakers or policymakers might do to help support. Somebody want to take a first stab at that one? Well, I Amy? I can take a stab. So you know, um, NCQA, as the accreditation body, um, has introduced a social needs screening and intervention measure. It is um, you know, in partnership with CMS and the expectations of screening of senior members in the Medicare program. And it is challenging for our customers to find that data. The, the, there's many, as John had indicated, many screening tools 
the standards haven't kind of gelled yet um, as to what uh, of those screening instruments are the most effective and standardized across stakeholders. Um, and so, you know, it's a good first step, but it's just the first step. I think there's a lot of work to be done. And if I could just uh, reiterate what I'm hearing you saying is there's there's government to entities which hold a lot of data about these populations, individuals, and it's difficult to get access to it or difficult to find even what they're what screening they did. Is that is that appropriate? Yeah. Yep. OK. Yeah, I, I would even dovetail off of that, uh, Matthew, by saying, you know, some of the past dealings of working with state agencies, for example, you know, sometimes they don't play well together because, you know, there's there's a lot of silos in there. So you might have the Medicaid side, but you might have uh, the correctional side. And some of that information doesn't, um, they're not set up to, to, to really cross-pollinate a lot of that data together. So sometimes the, the best, you know, foundation that legislature or, you know, coming out of, um, you know, the, the state house, there's, there's a disconnect because they're, they have their own disconnect uh, from, a, from a data perspective as well. So if we can get past that and everybody understand that we're, we're wanting to free flow this data for the betterment and the good of the community and not be so um, competitive, I guess, on who, who holds what and who gets to do with what, I think that's that's where we get over the hump. And I think, you know, it's a slow process, but, you know, uh, I think we're, I think everybody's got their heart in the right place. It's just a matter of, of getting, you know, enough key stakeholders in, in, in the same room to really kind of talk it through, you know, not just visually, but, um, you know, practically, uh, from a practical perspective of, of how to draw this out. Right, right. John, your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I would say that I, everyone admits it's a problem and needs to be addressed. So I think you have all these different levels that are trying to fix it on their own and they're kind of bumping into each other. So I really do think that that's where the standardization, normalization and some more open sharing can can help across the board. Um, and obviously coming down from CMS, even if it's only for the Medicaid or Medicare population when they're doing something, usually bleeds out into the commercial side eventually anyway. So that's a great place to be starting with. Um, CMS and ONC helping spearhead something would be, I think would help move things along. We are starting to see it. You're seeing things come out. You're now seeing some of the payers start to require screenings and stuff. So it is it is coming. We just need to kind of accelerate that a little. Uh, excellent, excellent. And, and uh, you know, one thing that's coming to mind, and this gets back to what we talked about earlier, John, with trust. Um, I think uh, a lot of the policymakers are trying to balance uh, the privacy concerns, right, with the uh, free the data hopes and dreams, right? Um, and we're certainly seeing that with the, the rise of AI and third-party app, health apps, and and a lot of uh, states are passing uh, consumer data laws, which would probably bleed into what you're doing. But it, 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 it seems to me that with social determinants of health, with the populations you're dealing with, that privacy uh, ideas actually might be ramped up. I think you said, you know, if you've got an upper middle class Fitbit user, then they're going to share it with the world. Uh, but there's probably parts of this population which are, 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 are uh, don't have that kind of trust and are more concerned about privacy issues. John, do you want to touch on that at all? And 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 is there a solution for that? And is it are we making it more complicated than it needs to be? I do think we have a tendency to overcomplicate it. Um, you're talking the screening information is being used to help, to help someone, and it's not. Tr- 
traditional HIPAA data that you're talking about. So I think there is some wiggle room that you can actually share some of this data um, within the right circumstances. If someone is telling you that they don't have transportation or don't have a home or don't have food, and you're trying to connect them to an organization that can help them, you have an obligation to give them enough data to get started, not make the person go back and start from scratch. Brian, any any comments on? Yeah, I mean, I... It's a, kind of a silly analogy, but I always kind of get a kick out of where everybody will put their life on Facebook and and, and totally be able to track everything they, they possibly do on in any given day. But yet they're they're not willing to, you know, provide enough information for for their you know, medical history or medical record or sharing of the data um, that is ultimately going to help them if and when, you know, certain instances arise. I, I think. It's a stigma. Uh, I think it has to be, pro- and it gets back to messaging, and I think how it's presented, and 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 why. Getting back to the whys of of it, it's needed, and and maybe putting it in in different perspectives so that people can can really say, well, gosh, you know, I probably share more than I probably <laughs> do already, but this is something I should, you know, this is something that's important. So this is probably worth doing. Yes, yes. Amy, any thoughts on the privacy yeah, versus? Yeah. And I think the other part of this is, you know, to some degree, uh, providers need training on how to be, how to sensitively collect this information, right? So if you stick a piece of paper in front of somebody and ask them a lot of personal questions, you know, that's probably the kind of response you'd get. But someone who's uh, been trained in interview techniques and, um, you know, can elicit those responses, you know, it might work out differently. Right. Uh, I think that's a that's an excellent point. I think about the question, I don't know, providers were required to start asking two or three years ago of how much sleep do you get? And that they just ask it. And you're like, well, last night, three hours. But, you know, if you talked to me a week ago, I was getting good sleep. So, yeah, that's uh, those are great points. So uh, excellent discussion. Um, I'd like to uh, leave you all for to uh, leave your closing thoughts. Uh, Brian, if you want to kick us off on uh, maybe something we haven't talked about, uh, what your hopes and dreams are for the future in this area or Whatever you want to touch on. Well, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity, Matthew. I, I think, you know, uh, what I try to do in my daily uh, work life is really create um, kind of stories, build stories around, you know, um, what I've heard, what I've seen, what I've encountered, and, and kind of going back to the homelessness. You know, somebody that was homeless, um, you know, six months ago, um, now they're not, but yet somebody that, you know, was in a home couple of weeks ago now is homeless. But one thing that, you know, we all uh, at least can tell that most homeless, you know, folks have a cell phone. So again, that is a, an actual way of, of connection, you know, grabbing that information uh, when you can. And because things change so very, very fast in this, in this area. So I think, you know, I think there's hope in the future. I feel very positive about, you know, what we're trying to do and, and the folks that we're talking to and, and everybody's got a vested interest. And, and that's one of the reasons why I've been in this profession for, you know, going on close to 30 years is because, um, you know, you kind of wake up every day going, hey, I think I can move the needle a little bit. Sometimes I feel like I'm having the same conversations I had seven years ago. But um, the thing is, is that um, you get up thinking, hey, we have an opportunity to to make significant change. And you know, there's not too many professions where you can where you can do that. So I think that's that, that keeps me hopeful. I, I think that's a I think that's a great thought. I mean, I think uh, 
especially in, in your arenas where you're looking at data and numbers and screens all the time. I think that work is saving lives, even though uh, it may not feel like it when you're sitting at your computer. Amy, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Brian. You know, some of the things that we work on are, we've talked a lot today about the people that are presenting and we have data on, but the people that don't present and we have no data on are equally important to evaluate. And so a lot of what we're about is making sure that we provide a framework to identify, you know, where some of that um, underlying risk may live in segmenting those patients in a, in a scalable, sustainable way in order to do interventions to engage. Excellent. Excellent. John? Well, we've probably talked about most of it. But one of the keys, I think, is the data sharing and having the data available for use. If you have enough data, you can do all sorts of things with it, um, including engaging the, the patients. And that's really the ultimate success is when you get them, the patient, to engage with you back. And that's where if you use the data and you can look at the different uh, cultural differences, um, economic differences, and target them all differently and able to get to, to, to make it truly equality, not just equal, right? So that you're getting them where they are and what they need. Uh, not just treating everyone the same because everyone has different needs. And that's really the thing that gets lost a lot. Yes. Yes. Great, great note to end on. Thank you, John. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Brian. I've enjoyed the discussion. I think our listeners enjoyed the discussion. Hope to have you on again in, uh, in a bit and see how things have progressed. Fantastic. Thank you. Excellent. So we spoke, to, spoke today to uh, Brian Weichel, Principal Sales Executive at SSNC Health. Amy Saul, was, who is the uh, data goddess for SSNC, and John Novak, CEO and VP of Information Services at the Bergen New Bridge Medical Center. And this has been the collective voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. And this is where the informa health information technology community connects. We collaborate and we create solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.